0: Well, we welcome you once again on this third Sunday of Advent, and we are a week away from Christmas Eve services, and we cannot wait to celebrate Christmas with you. Just a couple of points about next week. As Callum mentioned, will you consider prayerfully uh, inviting a friend or family or neighbor to one of our Christmas Eve services? It is a joy for us to come and celebrate uh, Almighty God together. So be prayerful about that one person that you could be praying for to invite. Next Sunday, and speaking of next Sunday, this is really important. Christmas Eve services begins at 12 p.m. We have six services: 12 to 4, two services at 4 p.m. here in sanctuary, as well as in Elliott Hall, and 6 and 8 p.m. If you show up at 9:30 a.m., we will not be here. Actually, we'll put you to work. That's what we will do. You'll find great parking, but come at noon, 2, 4, 6, 8 p.m. World. We'll, I'm excited to introduce our guest pastor with us today, Mark Labberton, most recently recently has been uh, the president of Fuller Seminary. And what I love about Mark is his deep understanding and, and theological conviction of how theology intersects with the realities of the practical needs of the world. He has been a senior pastor for 16 years in Northern California. And because of his love for mercy, justice, God's kingdom work, he has served along with International Justice Missions as well as John Stott Ministries. And Mark, we're so grateful that you are here with us. We join me in welcoming Mark Laberton.
1: What a joy and honor it is to me to be with you today. I- I'm grateful that this is one of many trips that I've actually had here to be part of things at Highland Park. And today I come really, as as you know, as your other guest preachers have been probably expressing as well, we come representing the sea of people that are surrounding you as a congregation who deeply enter into and share the grief of this season in your life. Brian Dunegan was someone that I met when he was a Stanford student, and for years since then and, until his passing, he was someone who was just consistently a bright light, a, a gift of a brother in Christ who shared deeply so many of the same concerns that I had as well. And we found deep kinship together as a result, and many of you did, likewise. So today as we come, we come acknowledging that life is, is fragile. I know there's been two other shocking deaths that the congregation has also experienced just recently. These are, these are the realities that I want us not to forget or push away, but to actually bring somewhat self-consciously as we look at the text that we're going to be considering this morning. It's a text that invites us into one primary theme this morning. There are different ways of reading this section of the text, but I want to suggest the place I want us to focus is invulnerability. Let's pray. Oh, you are a good, good God for a very, very needy world. We come this morning as individuals in need, families in need, a congregation in need. We come as citizens of this place and of this nation, many of us, and we come also, oh God, as part of the the global reality of human beings around the world. And the text that we're looking at today is actually for all of us. May we have ears to hear, and hearing, may we receive the good news, because it's true, and because it sets us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I think it would probably not be an overstatement to say that the genealogy in the opening chapter of Matthew 1 is probably no one's life verse, right? No one says, those are the verses that just most deeply speak to my heart. No, that's not usually how the genealogy lands. But I want us to first spend some time there and then look at the birth narrative. Matthew's gospel is really a gospel that I think of as the gospel of surprise. Some of you will know that it's a gospel that probably is the most uh, Hebrew in its definition and its orientation. It quotes the most from the Hebrew Scriptures. It has the most citations of how it is that God is fulfilling what God had long begun in Israel and now uniquely fulfilling in and through Jesus Christ. So it is a gospel in which there's endless citation of things that are just exactly on track for the things that have been promised long ago. This is the same God that is still at work for Israel's life. And it's not at all what you expected. It's the gospel of surprise. And the genealogy is exactly the place where Matthew begins to tip his hand. And this feature of Matthew's gospel tracks all the way through the whole book. So it begins in a very classic kind of way. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Nothing could signal more automatically right at the start that this is the traditional deep waters of Israel's genealogy and God's faithfulness over all of these generations by generations. And as we read through, we're expecting to see the same. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. This is the first surprise. We were not expecting Tamar to be in this genealogical list. Not only the name of a woman, but the name of a woman with a complicated story and a complicated and messy family background who plays a critical role in Israel's life, but is not a name that would have been expected in the list at this particular moment. And it continues. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Again, this, who? I mean, this is not a name that has existed in the great pantheon of the saints that are part of the blue blood line that leads directly to the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. You do not expect Rahab, the prostitute, to be the one who ends up in that list. That was not an expected name. And Boaz, the father of Ovid, by Ruth. was not even an Israelite, a Moabite, somebody who in one sense, genealogically absolutely does not belong in this story of faithfulness of God through the line of Israel that leads to the Jesus, the Messiah. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, otherwise known as Bathsheba a story that is hardly the highlight of David's life. It's hardly the moment of the shining king, the victorious warrior. Instead, it's a story of deceit and greed and lust and stories of murder and vengeance and a trail of a family story that will ultimately actually undo Israel. The whole long history, in fact, will fall into a series of incidents and experiences that will lead ultimately to its decay and even brokenness. And yet it's all here. If I was to continue reading all of this, which I will spare you, what you would find is, again, the names of people who plenty of men whose names in this story, not least David, not least Abraham, not least Judah, not least Isaac, complicated stories. Stories that belong in a nice genealogy, but if you actually just pick a little bit away from the surface, you realize that the narratives that are underneath them are stories of human beings. And it just turns out one of the things that all of these people have in common is acute vulnerability. they had roles, and they had names, and they had power, and they had authority, and they did significant things, and they believed God, and God was faithful to them. But right underneath the surface of all that was acute vulnerability, just an endless sea of vulnerability that shows up in so many different ways. And here, all through this genealogy, which Matthew sort of ties up toward the end of this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. It's just just Matthew kind of saying, okay, actually through this whole line there's a whole lot of messiness. It's messiness that comes out of real human vulnerability. It's messiness that God has also called and used, even... People like these people God has used, and then he ties it up with a bow, kind of 14, 14, 14. Isn't that a glorious list? This is what leads to the birth of Jesus the Messiah. And then we turn to the narrative that is about the birth of Jesus the Messiah, and it has nothing to do with that line. Why? Why would Matthew begin this gospel, which is going to tell in just a moment's time a birth narrative that comes through Mary, a vulnerable, again, young girl, and Joseph, who was in this line, but who himself actually didn't contribute so much to the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. It's his curiosity that Matthew is saying, are you paying attention? Are you actually listening? See, here's a God who has worked through this remarkable, jaded, complicated story to use vulnerable people to actually still accomplish my will and to bring God's people, Israel, to this moment. And now in vulnerability, facing the dominant power and authority of Rome, facing everything that was saying and saying to Israel every single day, you are vulnerable Rome used to love building certain edifices in empty spaces where there were, of course, no large structures whatsoever. And they would build maybe a 30 or 40-foot facade just to say, in the most remote places, we are here and you are small. That vision of, of Roman power is a way of dominating the people, to say to them, you Are small, but we, Roman power, are strong. And it's in that emphasis that now this vulnerable people, through this narrative, receive an unexpected, shocking surprise. Not just that along the way God has used unlikely women, but plenty of unlikely men. And God's faithfulness has persisted, persisted, persisted with vulnerable people. And now we come to this vulnerable scene. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, and they had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son. The vulnerability of Mary is really hard to overstate. To be a very young girl, not so young, in those times as in ours, but nevertheless, a very young girl, now pregnant by the Holy Spirit. I've always thought this was one of the great underappreciated comedic lines in the opening chapter of Matthew 1, that Mary is to take comfort, uh, as the angel says to Joseph, that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I mean, I just find that like a huge, we're so used to that language, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, because that's That's surely an easy thing to like be in stride with. I'm not just pregnant, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Let's just pause and acknowledge that's a bit of a surprise. This has never been said before in the whole scriptures. This has never been true otherwise. This is a one-time event. But take comfort, Mary, she's pregnant, but it's by the Holy Spirit, so it's okay. I don't know, I don't know if I was Mary, I don't know if I was Joseph, that that would be necessarily words of comfort. But it was certainly meant to be an announcement that this young girl in this vulnerable time for these people Israel in this vulnerable time and for this couple, betrothed, engaged, but not yet married, that suddenly Joseph, being a righteous person, not yet having had relations with with Mary, now honors and receives this good news that his betrothed is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. These, these are things that are beyond mind-boggling. And what are they for? They're all part of the story that leads them to God's response to an intensely vulnerable human reality that God is going to do the most surprising thing of all. He's going to come as the most vulnerable young baby. The story does not arrive, as you know, with a great conquering hero appearing on a great steed and charging and taking on somehow the masses of Roman authority and dominating power. No, Jesus comes vulnerably as God in human flesh. This is not new news verbally, like we've aligned those words ourselves, probably all could say that's what the Christian faith confesses. But the more important thing is that it's what the christian faith names about the character of god that god is willing to come in vulnerability to be with us who are vulnerable so vulnerable that we cannot save ourselves we can't even save ourselves from rome let alone not save ourselves from other kinds of authorities and powers and influences and jurisdictions It's a vulnerable world. Now, what makes this especially interesting, especially in our own day, is that now looking back on these millennia, we can say that in a way the arc of human history is really the arc of elaborate means by which human beings in all times and places have gone to actually hide our vulnerability, to actually avoid vulnerability, to deny it, to push it away, to mask it, to dress it up, to decorate it all for the sake of hiding actually inside vulnerabilities of so many different teeming kinds. Vulnerabilities about our own weaknesses, our own inabilities, our, our own failures, our limitations, our appearance versus the reality, always being aware of that vulnerable dynamic. Having spent a great deal of my life around academic institutions, There is probably no institution I've yet encountered that has more of a sense of a community of people of the gathered vulnerable than in academic circles. The pomposity would make you think otherwise, (laughs) but in actual fact, so many people in those settings carry on this feeling I'm just a moment from being exposed. That's true in academics, it's true in lots of settings. It's true in lots of business settings, it's true in neighborhoods, it's true in families. There's people with great stature, great ability, great wealth, great influence, who actually in their own being struggle daily with forms of fragility and vulnerability that they know nothing of, that they don't know what to do with. This is why denial is such a pervasive theme in our lives, why looking away, shirking, blaming, masking, covering, dressing up, all of those things are the things that we do to cope endlessly with actually a fractured reality inside us, an uncertainty. Part of the shock and horror of Brian's death is in part this sense that suddenly, in a, with a person who shows Every sign of vibrant health, life, love, faith, everything in Brian's life spilled out in this public sense, the sense of his own strength and capacity. And all of that was actually authentic. And even so, we can simply encounter an unexpected shock that we are biological creatures. We are always dust to dust. That we can simply go to sleep and not awake. That's the world that we live in. And then if you add to it layers of other kinds of social experiences in a world of violence, as we think about places around the world today as we were praying, I was thinking about places like Eastern Congo, six million people have been killed, or Myanmar, where a war continues to this day, and divides the nation, and especially abuses some of the most vulnerable people in Myanmar. Or I think of Ukraine, or I think of the Middle East. All of these are stories of vulnerability, but so is it, right? Here. Hi, I'm Mark, and I'm really vulnerable. I'm vulnerable in all kinds of ways that would not be appropriate for me to share at the moment but they mark my life. They have guided and shaped decisions I've made. They've taken me in directions that sometimes have been really good and which God has clearly and utterly met me and other times in ways that are wandering journeys. The gift of this season is that God comes vulnerably among us. Our children, of course, are long since grown And as we don't yet have any grandchildren, they are ready and eager, but no sign, no action, no apparent possibility at the moment, but eager. But it means then that when I'm in context, often in airports, frankly, and I see families and I see young children, and I'm watching really the vulnerability of the children, the beauty of that vulnerability, the fragility of that vulnerability, The sense of just realizing so much is happening right now between those parents and these young children. There is something remarkable happening there. And God comes as one of them and will later teach us that in fact we're to be like children. Now, these are things that we know we say. These are words that I don't think are in any way surprising to you. It's just that the reality is that God came vulnerably and therefore doesn't push away or deny our vulnerability, but shares it, embraces it. This is why in the angel's disclosure to, to Joseph, he says that Jesus will save their people from their sins because it's, it turns out that our vulnerability is not just finitude. It's a vulnerability of a, a readiness To simply pursue our own ends, to deny God, to look away, to choose our own path, to abuse our neighbor, to not see our neighbor, to not hear our neighbor, to not care about our neighbor, to consider our neighbor's enemies. So much of what happens in the sociological organization of, I think, every culture is a sorting of power. Who's going to be the more vulnerable and who's going to be the less vulnerable? Probably most of us in this room would consider ourselves among the less vulnerable. And even so, both for finitude reasons, mortality, and for sinful reasons, our honest core narrative is much more complicated than it might appear. So is there hope? The angel says that Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. And how will that happen? Because he comes as Emmanuel, God with us in our vulnerability. God is a companion to the vulnerable. I think about this as I think about all of us here this morning. You are in a vulnerable season as a congregation. A congregation with every capacity that any possible community on earth could want is in some way or another available to you as a community. And yet, in a moment, vulnerability announces itself through the shocking and painful loss of Brian. What that holds up is an opportunity to see ourselves, see, our, see ourselves in our vulnerability, to see ourselves in the places where we have fears and anxieties, whether it's about our existence and our, our health and. All of those concerns, or whether it's about other concerns that just leave us on edge. And what do we do with that? We do what we always do, which is a combination of things. We we at first just try to engage it and take it in because it is a fact. But in the context of that, some of us are going to try to move as quickly as possible away from that reality because not because the point is to dwell forever on the passing of Brian, but because Forever we are meant to actually face our vulnerability. But because we're really so uncomfortable with that, we do everything we can to you know, hide in any possible space that we might get, which might be cultural or financial, it might be relational, it might be product- about being hyper-productive, about deciding to resolve to rise above any vulnerability that might yet be avail- available for someone else to see. Unless the God who, who is vulnerable comes to us to be Emmanuel, God, with us in our vulnerability. I could tell countless stories of my own vulnerability, of my own incapacity. But in the middle of all that, I've also been able to be a pastor to a congregation of people in, of all places, Berkeley, California. Weird and wonderful Berkeley. And in that context, there's just a lot of vulnerable people. And the privilege of being a pastor, the privilege of being in a Christian community is the opportunity to stand very proximate to one another in our vulnerability, to actually know how to do this in a, in a genuine way, in a vulnerable way, in a capacity to actually empathize and not to walk away. But it's a journey. It takes time to become like that. Let me tell you about a woman named Doris. Doris was a woman in our church at the time who was about 85 years old. She was a regal, tall, very thin, beautifully white-haired lady, the kind of woman who would have her hair done at 11 on Friday every week. She was that sort of Presbyterian woman. And Doris was always just there, in the fourth pew, to the left. She was radiant, and she was real. Her life had told a complicated story. On this particular day, I'm in between two services that we had, and in the context of that, somebody comes up and says to me that Doris had arrived, and something terrible had happened to her at at her car on the street, and that she wasn't coming in, but, the person wanted me to know that she had been roughed up in some way, which I didn't understand. I was eager right after the services to rush to Doris's house because Doris had been my pastor so many times I thought maybe this time I could actually be Doris's pastor because she was so uh, perhaps in need. So I arrived at her home and she invited me in. It was clear that she was sort of ruffled up a bit, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was that was going on. We sat down, and I said, Doris, tell me. Like, something happened this morning. I don't know what it is at all. She said, well, you know, you know I was just parking in that place. You know that place that I parked? I, I said, I do. I know that place. She said, well, I was just in that place, and I was reaching back across the driver's seat to the passenger's seat to, be, to get those nut muffins. You know the nut muffins that I often bring to church, well, I was just reaching over for the nut muffins when somebody struck me from behind, pushed me across the console, put me in the passenger seat, grabbed the keys out of my hands, put them in ignition, slammed his door, and off we went. I was just so surprised, she said. Well, indeed, I said, by all means. Of course, you were surprised. She said, so I asked him what his name was. Note to self, when being kidnapped, start by asking your kidnapper's name. It was Jesse. So I said, he said his name was Jesse. I said, Jesse, what's happening? He he said, well, we're going to your bank because I'm going to need some money and I'm going to get it from you. And in a sequence of, of stops in sequential branches of her bank, they collected as much as he could coerce out of her account through the course of that morning. And Doris is finally about to be left by the side of the road. Each time she's coming in, she says, now, have you done this to other people? You know, why are you doing this? Because I'm a drug addict. It's a terrible thing, Dora said, to be a drug addict. Do you know that it's a terrible thing to be a drug addict? Your life is going to dissolve if you just keep going in that direction. You need Jesus, but you need a really good drug rehab program. Next stop, next stop. I had lots of drug rehab programs. None of them have worked. Again, another stop. And now finally, he's about to leave her. She says, I can't get out of the car. So Jessie comes around to the passenger seat, opens the door, escorts her around to the driver's seat, helps lift up her legs to get into the car, puts the seatbelt across her, and then leans in and kisses her on her cheek. George said, have you done this before? I'm going to pray that you get caught. This is terrible. You really should not be doing this to people. But secondly, you really need Jesus. I'm going to take care of that. But you also need to be convicted. So you'll stop doing this. And then you really need a good drug rehab program. I said, Doris, that's just overwhelming. She said, I know. But as I was sitting here, I was thinking, you know, I bet today there were a lot of other people that were also kidnapped. Note to self. when kidnapped, remember that you were among the fellowship of the kidnapped. I mean, it was like, so Doris, I came here to be your pastor, but maybe you could just close us in prayer because of the trauma I'm now experiencing through your telling of a story that now makes me feel disturbed about the world and about you. So we actually both prayed. It was not a surprise a couple weeks later that she was called in for a lineup. Sure enough, there was Jesse third from the left. I went with her on the morning that she was to testify. She gets into the into the witness box and she more or less says, hey, Jesse, it's me, Doris. Remember we we, we had that time in the car. You remember that one? <laughs> and judge, I'm just going to say he's guilty of everything that's being charged. He did all these things and I'll tell you all about that, whatever details you want to know. But I also want to say that he needs a really good drug rehab program. Now, I know that you have drug rehab programs, but he's told me he's been given bad drug rehab programs, so please give him a really good drug rehab program. I'm going to be the one who tells him about his greatest need, which is Jesus, but that's not really your concern. That's going to be mine. He's convicted. He's put in jail. And what eventually happens is that Doris, and sometimes me, go to the jail and just sort of hang out for a while with Jesse. Now this is an arc that in one sense makes absolutely no sense there's nothing about this that coheres in a kind of rational way except it utterly coheres to a person who knows their own personal vulnerability who knew it as a human being long before there was anything physical anything violent anything that was involving crime she just knew why because she had lived into a vulnerable neighborhood in Oakland California and had taught for 37 years in a school with vulnerable children. She understood a lot about what that actually means. And she was not afraid. Not because there wasn't danger, there was totally danger. It's that her fear was recalibrated by the reality of God's presence in that moment. Tell me your name, tell me your story, tell me what's going to happen let me tell you what i'm going to do let me lean toward your criminality and say you've got to be in jail soon but i want to love you in jesus name she did that almost every week for six months until jesse was moved to another place where they then wasn't able to continue and as a result doris didn't know the rest of jesse's story we don't know but what it was was a story of God saving Doris, but a story of God saving, seeking to save Jesse, a God who was with Jesse in Doris, an 87-year-old lady. It was at about that time that there was this young emerging scholar at Cal, the youngest person in his department ever to be tenured, you know, the star of stars in his field. And he began to hang out at our church, but really didn't understand anything about the Christian faith. He said, you know, I've heard your sermons, and I've heard about the gospel from you for needy people. But here's my story. I've gotten everything I ever wanted, and I have no idea why any of it matters. Are you telling me that if I come to your church that I will meet people who are actually like Jesus? Okay, so there's a question for a pastor to be asked. (laughs) I said, yeah, there are. And when he eventually came, Doris was the first person I wanted him to meet. They could not have been more different or more alike because they found one another in vulnerability. And in a God who in this season, at a time in the world that could be defined as a as one of the more acute seasons, nationally, internationally, personally, locally, medically, psychologically, we are vulnerable. And the great and amazing news of flowers like these and a beautiful sanctuary like this and services that will celebrate and have been celebrating a God who holds the future, that God holds the future in vulnerability and invites you to live in the awareness of your vulnerability in order to receive the good gifts that God can give you only in our vulnerability. So as we pray for Allie, as we pray for her family, as we pray for the vulnerability that we share, as we experience the vulnerability of our own families, lives, circumstances, challenges, questions, doubts, fears, anxieties, we meet a God who is with us to save us. And that is good news for the vulnerable. Hear us, O God. Our cries are deep, our hearts open to you. Maybe not open to one another, maybe very quiet, invisible, unseen. Maybe people sitting next to us in the pews have no idea what it is that we're actually carrying. But you, O God, are able to do what we cannot do Meet us and may the good news of Christmas land as the good news for the vulnerable of whom we are all a part. In Jesus' name.